and welcome to Unjustly Maligned, the show for people who go against the grain. We seek to rehabilitate overlooked, ignored, derided and just plain hated contributions to pop culture. Movies, novels, music, comic books, video games, whatever. If everyone hates it, we will find someone who loves it and let them explain why you should too. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and my guest today is a woman who's been a child entrepreneur, web developer, artist, and political fundraiser. She's now a podcaster talking about games on isometric, tech on rocket, and geek culture with regular appearances on The Incomparable. But without a doubt, she is best known for leading the game studio Giant Space Cat and being a prominent and outspoken feminist advocate in the games industry. So welcome back to the show, Brianna Wu. Hey, it's good to see you. Uh, see metaphorically, of course. <laughs> see metaphorically. I'm imagining you in my head in the picture box. The theatre of the mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, right, let us get straight to this one because this is, uh, as I'm sure it's not giving much away to people who've seen the title of the episode, this is the final in our own little trilogy of episodes. So please tell us what you have <laughs> chosen to talk about. Why? No, 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 no. Before I say that, I'd say I've stood up to Gamergate. I'm an outspoken feminist in the industry, but that is nothing to appearing on the show today <laughs> and defending the prequels. I am I am truly scared. So Especially with this particular one. So yes, tell us what you <laughs> have chosen to talk about. Give us some context. Tell us about its release, its reception, and then tell us why you think that those people are wrong. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I have the uh, highly controversial opinion that, you know, the prequel films are not that bad, right? Like, I think that um, you know, as a whole, they are generally not as good as the, um, you know, the original trilogy. But, uh, you know, Revenge of the Sith is, I think, an excellent, excellent, excellent Star Wars film. And, you know, I would actually rank it higher than Return of the Jedi in my own um, kind of, you know, mental hierarchy of that. And I have to say, I know a lot of people who are younger, and, uh, you know, they, they kind of saw these movies with fresh eyes, and you tend to agree with me. Uh, you know, I, I feel like what happened was people were so disappointed by Phantom Menace, which is, you know, very obviously the worst of any of the Star Wars movies to date, that I think they were just um, unable to evaluate this film on its own merits. Um, you know, so to me, I, I think this film... It's sometimes it's frustrating because I was watching it again last night, and you know I think it feels disconnected from reality in a way that the original trilogy doesn't, because so much of the action in the film takes place on computer generated sets. Mm -hmm. So it's really apparent that all the actors are doing things on green screen. Um, but I think overall, this is, um, it's a very Macbeth-like story, right? Like you really see this descent into darkness. And I think this is the one script of the, the prequels that, you know, it really emotionally connects with me. So I don't know. That's kind of my basic uh, defense of the film. How do you feel about it? Well, I, I first I should say that actually a number of not just younger people, but pro critics agree with you. Uh, I've, mm -hmm. I saw a number of when it was released, a number of critics saying that they thought this was obviously the best movie in the prequels, but also actually, yes, like the first, uh, some of them said it was the first great Star Wars movie since Empire which yeah. obviously meaning that they would therefore rank it above Jedi. I actually have a really, really soft spot for Return of the Jedi. I know there are many Star Wars fans who malign it, 
And I do agree that Empire is without a doubt the best movie in the original trilogy. But I really like Jedi, Ewoks and all, um, because it's the kind after the darkness of Empire, it's kind of, you know, the light caper movie almost that the uh, that the series needed, in my opinion. So I I don't think this is better than Jedi. Um, but I did I went into this kind of semi-cold, which is to say that I, as I've mentioned in the previous episodes we've done on this show about the prequels, I saw Phantom Menace and I, yes, I was one of those people who was so incredibly disappointed by it that I refused to watch any of the other prequels. So I hadn't seen Attack of the Clones and I hadn't seen this movie, Revenge of the Sith, until I made myself watch them for the podcast. <laughs> right, <laughs> um, right. But I do remember at the time people saying, oh, you should watch this one. It's the best one. But I, I kind of had a feeling that it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense without having seen the others. And I had no intention of seeing clones at that time. So I, as I say, I came to it sort of semi-cold, like I'm watching it 10 years after it was made, but having only just watched and been vastly disappointed by Attack of the Clones a few months ago. So my feelings are very mixed on this movie. Well, please, I'd love to hear that. I mean, um, what what is it that doesn't emotionally connect with you? And before, before you tell me that, I want to say, like, I don't dislike Return of the Jedi. I think that sometimes we have a, um, a tendency in geek culture to kind of not accept those more whimsical elements. Mm. Um, you know, I think Ewoks are cute. So, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, there was a, a trophy in a game where you got uh, 10 points for, like, punt kicking a bunch of Ewoks as a Sith, and I, I enjoyed getting that <laughs> that trophy. Uh, but, you know, like, I, I think it's a good film. And, you know, I think it has a lot of advantages over Return of the Sith. I think the sets feel more real. Mm. I think it feels connected to the action better. And I think it's, like, wrapping up a story. Um, you know, I think when Vader dies, spoilers, you know, that's a very emotional moment. Um, for me, though, this is kind of, I, I personally am attracted to this kind of dark narratives and like watching Anakin get swallowed whole by the, the darkness and really giving into his worst tendencies. It just, it rivets me watching it. I will do whatever you ask. Good. Just help me save Padme's life. I can't live without her. To cheat death is a power only one has achieved. But if we work together, I know we can discover the secret. I pledge myself. To your teachings. The force is strong with you. A powerful Sith you will become. Henceforth, you shall be known as Darth Vader. Thank you, my master. Well, I can understand that, 
Yes, and I certainly am a big fan of dark narratives and, you know, dark, if you'll pardon the pun, darker side stories. Um, I think my problem, having now seen them all, I think my problem with the prequel trilogy as a whole is that it feels almost more like theatre than cinema. Hmm. And by that, I mean that everything feels... uh, At no point watching these, did did I ever forget that I was watching a fiction? Do you know what I mean? There was no point at which it sort of sucked me in enough to lose myself and forget that I am watching a work of fiction being performed, much as in most theatre because of... This, you know, this sort of strange environment in which we produce and perform theatre because you are surrounded by other people and you're watching, you know, people literally on a stage surrounded by a proscenium arch and stuff. It's very, very difficult to ever fully immerse yourself in theatre in that way because there is always that slight remove of, oh, I'm watching something being performed. That's not to say that you can't enjoy it. I've enjoyed many, many nights at the theatre. I grew up not far from the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Um, and so had many trips out to watch the RSC perform and, you know, great stuff, but cinema has the ability and TV too, has the ability to make you forget that you are watching a work of fiction when it's at its best, when it's at its very, very best. Um, and I don't feel that the prequels ever really achieved that everything feels a little too performed and the the fake sets ironically i think actually a part of that you know the as you said oh, God, the, yeah. the massive 3d environments that everybody's in they look amazing but they never look convincing well can i say something about that i i posted something to uh you know my my uh website where i kind of post articles that grab my attention a few a uh, few months ago it was called why special effects uh peaked in the 90s so what they did was um, this was by a bunch of computer computer you know CGI specialists. So they looked at the average uh, Metacritic score of of science fiction movies and noted that on average they started to sharply drop at this one point. And the point was when we stopped being able to, we would composite like real shots of like downtown, like think uh, the Hulk you know, the first Hulk movie where he's like walking downtown and you see him just like composited on a street, like a street that we understand. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is as CGI and Autodesk smoke and a lot of these programs I use in my daily life have gotten so sophisticated, what we've begun to do is like we take now everything is computer generated. So the background of, you know, Phantom Menace might any still of it might be gorgeous with like cool looking sets and backgrounds and like a million things in the shot. But it's just like, it's never convincing because it never feels tied to any kind of reality. And yeah, there was a a, a teaser that came out for episode seven that I saw in love. It was just this, um, you know, movie clapboard coming down in front of all the physical sets that they did because there's something about that. It's like when you're on the bridge of the Enterprise. Like, that's a physical set that they're on. Right. And you believe that world. So, the problem is, like, they can do it professionally, but there's a part of your brain that just feels removed from all of that that acting. So, if you mix that with, like, George Lucas's tin ear for dialogue, <laughs> you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like, yeah, you know, there are lines like, good, double the pride, twice the fall, 
his fate will be the same as ours. Like, that's when it works. But, you know, there are love scenes with Padme that just fall completely flat. And when that's happening on this artificially generated world, um, it's very easy for me to understand why someone would just not fully emotionally connect with that world. You've made me think now if there is a kind of uncanny valley effect with the environment, because there is something about if it's not absolutely convincing for because of the way it's shot or because of the way it's modelled or whatever, there is because there is a very well documented effect, uh, which obviously is part of the Uncanny Valley with human recognition of faces. You know, mm-hmm. faces are so fundamental to our understanding of each other that we are, you know, a very very good, like almost perfect at telling when something is not actually a real genuine human face. Um, And now I'm wondering if we have a similar sort of identification thing with environments as well, because, you know, if you took a still of many of these digital sets in the prequel trilogy um, and looked at them just as a, you know, printout, like a photograph, you could be forgiven for thinking that they are real sets. Mm -hmm. But when you see people moving around in them, they just don't feel right. And it's really difficult to put your finger on exactly why. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, I'm glad to see they're rectifying that for, you know, episode seven. Mm. Yeah, that said, though, you know, a lot of people like to blast the overcomplicated plot of, you know, the prequels. And, you know, I really strongly don't agree with that. And let me tell you why. You know, episode four at its core is kind of. It's a very kindergarten-level plot, right? Like, there's a Death Star that's going to come blow up a planet, and they've got to stop it. You know, for me, as an adult, um, you know, I actually find things like economies and trade balance and, you know, like uh, blockading, you know, um, you know, different economies for political pressure. That, to me, is like an interesting political world that they live in. You know, some of my favorite novels, like Shogun, Noble House, you know, they kind of deal with these same subjects. So, to me, that kind of rich tapestry of, of the prequels, I actually like that quite a bit. I mean, how do you feel about that? I... I generally come down on the side of preferring, because I grew up, I'm older than you, and I literally grew up with the original trilogy. Um, so I I have that bias. that To me, a Star Wars movie should be fairly uncomplicated and a simple, you know, good versus evil with the occasional shade of grey, but not too much, thank you very much. Um, you know, that to me makes a good Star Wars movie. But that said, I do appreciate the attempt to make something more complex, I think where it falls down for me is in largely in the execution. However, one thing I will say is uh, one part of this movie that I, I wasn't, uh, that, that fell flat for me was the kind of relatively sudden rise of, uh, of the empire, basically, and, you know, sort of within a very, very short space of time, Palpatine goes from, oh, I'm a senator, oh, now I'm chancellor, and now we're going to be a fascist empire that, you know, commits genocide and uh, oppresses everybody through fear, and everybody's suddenly on board with that, and the entire so-called, so-called Senate, you know, cheers him and stuff. And that that seemed to happen way too fast, and it was, you know, a little bit trite. However, I think, if anything, actually, time has been kind to this movie for that scene, mm-hmm. because of course we are going through similar things to that 
right now all across Absolutely. the world, and especially here yeah. in Europe, we are seeing, you know, fascist leaders rise again and ride on a wave of literally saying, we will, you know, shoot people trying to get into our country. We will kill all the immigrants. We will throw these people out. We hate anybody who isn't like us. And there is a popular wave of people cheering them on and supporting yeah. them. So as incredible as that seems on reflection, actually that's perhaps one of the more realistic aspects of this movie. I mean, even today, there's a, a presidential candidate for a certain political party that said, you know, he would look at closing down all mosques, you know, in the United States if it would help stop, uh, if it would help stop ISIS. So, yeah, yeah, I fully agree with that. I mean, you know, this is, um, this is part of human nature. There's a quote from George Lucas when he was writing the original trilogy that I just heard and I loved. It was like, you know, um, you know, fathers die, sons rise up to replace them, you know, uh, rebels rise up, empires falls. This is the march of history. And that is very much, you know, like Star Wars. And it, it mirrors our own world. Mm. You know, these are, these are historical things that are, you know, they're not going to go away. So, you know, I, I agree that time has been very kind to that. Um, as far as that scene happening too quickly, I, I very firmly agree with that. I think it could have been done, um, I think it could have been done better. I also feel like the uh, the the fight in the Senate between uh, Yoda and Palpatine is, I, I think it's just anticlimactic and it doesn't really make much sense. Mm. <laughs> um, but to me, the emotional core of this movie, like the moments that that tear me apart when I, I watch it. Like, I think you have to give credit to the actors. Like, as Anakin is just swallowed up by his hate and anger and is screaming that he's going to kill Obi-Wan. Like, I tremble just even thinking about that scene. When I, when I think about, like, Obi-Wan just being torn to pieces emotionally as he watches, you know, his apprentice fall prey to the dark side and says, you know, I have failed you, Anakin. You know, that, that is, a, it's horrible to me. And it rings so true. Or seeing like your loved one, you fall prey to the worst sides of themselves. I mean, all of us, if we're married, you know, we know the good and the bad in our partners. And, you know, I can so easily imagine that. So to me, that is the emotional core of this movie. And I just think it's brilliantly done. Well, I think that uh, you're right that it's a good emotional core. I think this speaks actually to one of the, well, in my opinion, failings of the prequels, which is that they all sound better when someone else tells you what they're about and what happens, <laughs> which is to say that they all have really, really good ideas. Yeah. And they are a good sort of sweeping story and you know, some details of the plot aside, it's, you know, as a, an overall idea for a story, it's not bad. But where it falls down repeatedly is in the execution. Um, and a good example of that, actually, is you were saying, you know, watching somebody fall, that you love your husband, fall prey to the darker sides of his personality. Yes, of right. course, that is absolutely gut-wrenching. And Natalie Portman is a fine, fine actress. But uh, that scene just left me cold in this movie really well, partly because like in the previous movie he'd already admitted to her that he killed the women and children too when he killed oh, the sand yeah you know he'd already said that so when she then suddenly goes wait he killed like other jedi and 
children, and suddenly that's it. That's what breaks her. And I'm like, but hang on, <laughs> that's not so far removed from what he did last movie, and you, you know, then slept with him. So I don't know. It, it, that's just one example of that kind of uh, what these movies really would have benefited from, in my opinion, is to have all been written and then somebody to go over them with a red pen and, you know, sort of rewrite and put bits in that actually foreshadowed other parts. Too much of it comes out of thin air or comes out of our expectation, or rather their expectation, that we have already seen the original trilogy. A lot of the points in the prequels and in this movie, I find, rely on the audience knowing the original trilogy. Now, that's a fair assumption. Let's, you know, they're one of the most popular movies of franchises of all time. Pretty much everybody has seen them, but it makes for lazy filmmaking, I think. I I wouldn't agree with you on the the Anakin turning to the dark side thing. I think like, you know, killing the people that kidnapped and murdered, you know, Anakin's mother. I think that is, that was a horrible moment. And I mean, I'm telling you, like, I'm shaking right now just thinking about that emotional core when they play the the March of the Empire underneath it, when Anakin is saying, I killed them all, the women, the children, I killed them all, they're animals. That was horrible. But, you know, it's like, it was just a piece of where he was going. You know, this is someone that we saw as a child, in the first movie, it was so full of hope. And I feel like you just see more and more of it slip out until it just, you know, washes all over him. So, um, yeah, I just don't, I, I just flat out don't agree with that scene. I do think that the, I think they got the darkness dead on. What I think they failed to do is the the romance part of it. Like, you know, you know, sand is rough and coarse, not like you. Like, that's the worst dialogue <laughs> yeah. I can think of ever. Like, it's like a, a it's like a 12-year-old boy band member like writing <laughs> lyrics out of his notebook, you know? Like it's 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 terrible. And to me, it was the the love of it. Hold me like you did by the lake. Right. When all we had was love. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, oh, so bad. It was so bad. Um but you know, I think it's I what I'm hoping they will do is there are there are weird pauses all throughout the prequels. Do you know what I mean? Where it's the same style of dialogue, but it just feels so artificial and the beats are just slightly off and it's forced. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I do, and that's part of the sort of lack of execution that I mean. That's what well that's yeah. That's partly what I meant about it feeling more a bit more like theater than cinema. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, this is unfairly maligned. I feel like I want to talk a bit more about the positive. I mean, please do. Yeah, what did you, what did you think about the scene with Darth Plagueis? Ah. Because that scene is riveting every time I see it. I actually have that marked out as to me, that is the best scene in the movie. Oh. It's so telling. It has nothing to do with sets yep. or explosions or lightsaber battles. It's just emotion. It's just two actors. Yes. Yep. And it is the most convincing thing that I saw in the entire prequel trilogy. Um, and that's largely down to Ian McDermott, who is brilliant, but has mm-hmm. been, let's be honest, pretty much wasted in the prequel trilogy before this movie. That's fair. And then he gets to step to the fore and really sort of, you know, show what he can do. And yeah, that scene, two guys sat next to one another just talking. 
for what two three minutes and yet you're right it is absolutely riveting it is so well done hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise, he could use the Force to influence the midi-chlorians to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side, he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. He could actually save people from death. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. What happened to him? He became so powerful. The only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. Unfortunately, he taught his apprentice everything he knew then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. It's ironic. He could save others from death, but not himself. Is it possible to learn this power? Not from a Jedi. So, yeah, just to give people a bit of background, this is where, um, you know, if you've read the the novels surrounding it, like, you know, that the Emperor has, like, cloning technology and all these other ways to cheat death. But he's telling the story of Darth Plagueis, you know, the Sith that, you know, managed to cheat death and, you know, live forever. And, you know, the Emperor has kind of put this seed into Anakin's mind that Padme is going to die. And at the same time, it's like holding this carrot out there of like, here's how you can save her if you'll just come to the dark side. And, you know, it's just a, it's a wrenching scene. Um, I think as far as design work, like that opening shot of the two Jedi fighters, like, going through this battle, so you watch it, like, flying next to the hull of a, you know, a, um, a, um, you know, like, the, the, the freighter, the large-scale freighter, and then it pans over them, and then you look down at this battle, and it's just, like, the most epic battle you've ever seen in your life. I think this movie has tons of excellent shots like that. I thought that first battle fell a little flat, Actually, you're, hmm. you're right that visually it looks amazing and it's a great, the idea of following two fighters over the hull of the freighter and then revealing that there's a huge battle going on. That, that's, that was a good gag like that. But the battle itself uh, just didn't really do a lot for me. Uh, and I think part of that was because it takes uh, like 30 seconds, 60 seconds before we actually even see a human face or realize who is in these fighters that we're following. Um, oh. and they just seem to, they seem to fly through it a little too easily. It's a bit like the chase scene that starts off, uh, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Um, it, it, during which at no point does any, it, does it feel like there's any jeopardy? It doesn't feel like anybody is actually in danger at any point. And it's the same here. You know, you've got 
when those strange robots that kind of carve off bits of the ship land on uh, uh, Obi-Wan's ship. And he just seems completely and utterly calm. You know, he's not, his ship is literally being torn to pieces around him. And yet, uh, you know, it's as if he's just lost a few points at croquet or something. It's, it's really <laughs> odd. Well, I think there's all of that. And I think that opening scene of them, like, you know, infiltrating this, uh, you know, this um, ship where the Emperor has been captured. And then, you know, they kill Count Dooku. And then, you know, they fight General Grievous and fly him out of the ship. And then this freighter has half of it fall off and it crashes into, um, what was it, Genosis or Coruscant? I can't remember. Um, I think it's Coruscant, but don't quote uh, me on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like that whole scene, to me, it's, it's a perfect example of the failing of the prequels. Because everything there should be interesting but like as i was watching it i kept going through each shot with my husband saying that's on a computer that's on a computer that's on a computer that's on a computer so like flipping around in an airlock it's on a computer it doesn't feel real like r2d2 taking out you know droids um it's on a computer it doesn't feel real you know in the throne room with general grievous it's in a computer it doesn't feel real like all of it. That entire scene, I think, was because c- Grievous himself is computer generated. Yeah. So yeah, that entire scene with Grievous on the bridge, because there are no humans in that scene. It's like the entire scene is just CG. Right. And that's like you think of that same scene that's alluding to from Return of the Jedi, and like the Emperor in the throne room. You felt like you were in that place because they built that set. So you know, I think it's like. I, I think for these movies, maybe that's the core question. Like, can you forgive that you don't feel attached to the reality that you're in and kind of buy into it? And I think for a lot of people, it sounds like you too, like that answer is no. Um, for me, I'm willing to forgive that and kind of look at the rest of the structure of it and, and see a character arc that I find very compelling. Well, and, you know, you're by far, you're not alone. There are many, many other people, many of them younger people who are not mm-hmm. sort of old and cranky like me. <laughs> um, who, I don't find you cranky, I have to <laughs> but say. But people who grew up, to them, Star Wars was already a thing that was old and in the past. And the prequels were, you know, sort of fresh and new. Um, so, you know, I don't hold it against anybody for that. But I think that sort of generational attitude really does has had an effect on people's attitude towards the movies. And make no mistake, there are many, many people who do love the prequels. And like I say, I would not argue with the notion that this is clearly the best movie of the prequels. Hmm. By far. How did, yeah. How successful do you think it was in bridging episode three and episode four? Because if you if you knew the time where it came out, you know, George Bush was um, you know, it was the re-election and all the aftermath of that. Um I think it was 2005. And, you know, so there was a sense of the empire and all the things we were discussing it being very prescient. And, you know, then you had the question was, well, are they going to be able to tie this trilogy that has kind of failed so far and make it feel like it's connected to episode four? So I felt like the ending of it is incredibly rushed where, you know, Luke, Leia are born and, you know, you see, um, you know, Leia Organa's father on, you know, this uh, Nebulon B, uh, well, first on the Tantavine 4, and then, you know, they're staring out on Nebulon B medical frigate out in space. 
case. Um, I thought that those visual cues and kind of connecting it to the opening scenes of episode four, I thought that that was wildly successful. And I think it's very telling that one of the few sets that they built in this, which was the Tantavine four, um, you know, like you see that they built the same plastic where that opening fight with stormtroopers right. takes place. And to me, that was the one moment where I go, oh my God, I'm believing in this world. I feel like I'm living in the Star Wars universe again. And I think that like building those sets was a very, very good call. I think as individual scenes, yes, they worked. Um, for many of the reasons that you just said, yes, they did tie it. If anything, they kind of tied it too well into hmm. the original trilogy because partly I think it suffers by comparison, but also part- <laughs> also partly because uh, then you start to suddenly have those moments of thinking, hang on, so this is only 20 years before the first movie, and yet everything is so different. And Han Solo claims that he knows nothing about the Force, despite the fact that apparently Chewbacca was one of Yoda's bodyguards down on Kashyyyk. It's like, what on earth? This is what I mean about the execution. It's like yeah. somebody needed to go through this and go, wait a second. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Like, George, can we have a word? <laughs> so I, I have to ask, what do you think of Darth Vader's no screen? Because that was a very divisive event there. I was not a fan. Actually, you know, honestly, <laughs> right, here's the thing. The actual scream, I, or rather the... That it's in itself, I actually didn't have as much of a problem with. What I did have a problem with was the physical acting that went along with it. Huh. Um, I thought it looked just bad, just bad. If he'd literally, if he'd done the platoon, if he'd dropped to his knees, flung his arms in the air and gone, no, then <laughs> I actually would have preferred it. I think I would have been more convinced. But instead, he does this weird, stilted half bend at the waist and sort of, you know, one arm like bent and it's just really straight. It looks really uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it's all on a CG set, right? right so yeah. like Platoon felt connected to reality. Here it's very apparent it's all CG Vader. And not only know? that, but Hayden Christensen was actually inside that suit wearing like, you know, 12 inch lifts and yep. looking out through the mouthpiece apparently. <laughs> um, so, you know, knowing that, okay, well, yeah, it probably wasn't very easy to walk around in. but. Yeah, that was, say, the cry itself, I actually didn't have that much of a problem with, but the physical acting that goes along with it, I thought was, yeah, not so great. However, that also, as I said before, I thought, you're right, that the closing individual scenes work fine, and the callback to the Twin Moons scene as well, where Uncle Owen is standing in exactly the same spot as Luke will stand in 20 years' time, staring out at the Twin Moon sunset, um, the binary sunset, that's what it's called. Um you know, and they play the same lovely John Williams score. That's that's all lovely. However, I don't think those scenes needed to be in the movie. Hmm. I actually would have preferred if they had cut this movie basically at the or or <laughs> or you know pretty much shortly after because I just don't think we know that. Like so much of the rest of the movie relies on us having seen the original trilogy, and they've already said that the kids are called Luke and Leia. That there's no need to actually see them going and, you know, being sort of given parents, if you like. I can see that. You know, it's like the the editions they did for the special edition of Empire, where, you know, Vader's walking out, alert my star 
destroyer, my arrival, and it just like slows down yeah. this breathtaking and whiplash ending. I I can see that. Like it's kind of just slowing down the pace of it to to put it in there. But I think it's a defendable choice. Um I, I can see what you're saying. Well, I can see so. why they did it. And yeah, I just I I'm a fan of sort of things moving at a bit of a snappier pace, <laughs> basically. Huh. So so one of my favorite, um, you know, talking about deleted scenes and all of that on the on the special edition of um, of this, the Blu-ray set that came out a few years ago, um, there is a really, really, really interesting deleted feature where you get to see this animatic that they didn't end up turning into um, a part of the movie. But um, you know, I think the fight with General Grievous on the 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 you know where Obi Wan is riding the creature. It you know, makes the squealing noises, and you know, General Grievous is on a, a ship with one tire. So there's a really, really, really interesting animatic that they ended up cutting. And for me, as someone that does you know 3D work for a living, it's absolutely fascinating. So you get to see like this entire scene of like Grievous coming down and like running through a train tunnel and like so this train is coming at him and then it blasts through him he's like cutting through it at the same time and fighting through it alongside obi-wan and you know i feel like i feel like that entire battle it's it's so reminiscent of the same problem the attack of the clones had where you know the entire sequence where padme is on the 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 belts and you know she's being just like paced through infinite danger that's what this same scene feels like you know where they're there at the camino clones and you know all this stuff is going on and this animatic i think hinted to a much simpler sequence where you know it's just obi-wan chasing general grievous and they're on this train it's just this breakneck this breakneck just rush through these sets and i feel like I feel like if they had tried to do that rather than give us another infinite battle scene of like, you know, infinite CG stormtroopers shooting at each other, I think it would have been much more successful. I think a, each movie has had one uh, scene where you can point at it and go, oh, that's for the video game. <laughs> and, and this was that. Like, and you're right. In the yeah, first one, yeah. it was the pod race. In clones, it was the Padme on the conveyor belt scene, uh, which. Actually, have you played Beyond Good and Evil? I have. Yeah, it really reminded me of that section of Beyond Good and Evil. Absolutely. Um, and I can't remember which of those came out first now. Uh, and in this movie, yeah, it's the it's the General Grievous Obi-Wan Kenobi fight scene, which is really unnecessarily long. I have no doubt that will be in the new Battlefront that's going to come out in a few <laughs> weeks. So I think you're probably right. We'll see when but that comes. What the, Grievous is another thing that, like, I mean, for a start, there's the confusion of is he a cyborg or is he a droid? Like, is there a difference uh-huh. between the two? Obviously, we need to get John Syracuse in to answer that question. <laughs> um, but why Grievous? Why not use Dooku? Why not continue using Christopher Lee? Why waste him? You know what I mean? Why kill him off so quickly? Because he was only in the end of episode two and then the start of episode three. And then they introduce this entirely new guy who you, hasn't even been mentioned until now in the form of Grievous. You know, th- that was sort of, I mean, this is armchair quarterbacking, no question, but I can, sure. I kept thinking like, why didn't you just sort of, you know, rewrite the part slightly, rewrite the event slightly so that that was Dooku again, so that you could have Christopher Lee instead of somebody, I don't even know who, doing voiceover on an animated 
weird droid who's also a general. Yeah, I think that I've never really thought of that before, but every one of the prequel films sets up their new cartoon villain, mm. right? Like, you know, every single one. Like, oh, what was his name for the first one? Darth, um, Darth Maul. Darth Maul, right? He's completely awesome. And, you know, they kill him. And I don't know. I, I think that's really well said. You know, if you've seen all of the seasons of The Clone Wars, which is... I have not watched you know, The Clone Wars. I'm oh, told it's great. Oh, it's 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 hard to get through the first few seasons, but you know it kind of fleshes out a lot of the world and a lot of these characters, like General Grievous. And you know, I think it's important to remember there are a lot of children growing up today that are going to feel the same way about Ahsoka as you do about you know the original trilogy. Um, you know, I know a lot of young girls that feel like Ahsoka is their hero because you know she's the first you know really strong female Jedi character, and you get to see her mature over the course of all these seasons. But I, I think that you can't, you can't, for a film, make a requirement to have seen another series or read something else. Like, every film needs to stand alone. And I think without that strong theme of a Darth Vader or some strong theme of who the, the enemy is or the objective is, where it's just amorphous and shifting through every single film. I think that's a very fair criticism. And I think like the, that choice comes down to them being able to, you know, take an admittedly cool design and like the passion for that design work and hoping it would carry itself through a weak script. Right, which, yeah, I don't think it does. I mean, they clearly wanted the the Emperor, Palpatine, you know, um, right. Darth Sidious. They wanted him to be the ultimate villain throughout, you know, the sort of overarching throughout the movies. And that's totally understandable. Of course, he's the great villain of the trilogies, uh, even though he only appears really in the... Uh, you know, properly in the third movie. Um, but again, much like this one, he only really properly appears in the third movie. And in the original trilogy, in his place, his surrogate, if you like, was Darth Vader. And yet, in these movies, each one, he has a different surrogate. It's almost like he's trying out different apprentices until he comes to uh, Anakin hmm. Skywalker and then says, yeah. oh, okay, right, he'll do. And I finally found one who isn't going to die. <laughs> <laughs> one that can go the distance. Yeah. And you know, we have to talk about like the Emperor's sudden appearance, right? So yeah. I'm trying to imagine if like Obama came came on TV today. I was like, what's up, y'all? I look like the Emperor today. <laughs> and you know, like like there would be some discussion about that, right? Well, like, he just he blamed would... it on the assassination attempt. Right, right. It's um A the CG for those sequences are just terrible. Yes, they are. It doesn't work at all. And I just found that whole thing to just not be convincing at all. You know, I, I went, I was about to make a note while I was watching that of like, wait, hang on. So he suddenly appears looking completely different and nobody says right. anything. But right. then he does explain it away as saying, you know, their attack left me horribly <laughs> scarred. I mean, it's still, it's still pretty dubious, but you know, okay, whatever I can. It, it felt cartoonish to me. It did. It did. But I, I can go with it at least. I mean, we're talking about a universe in which everybody accepts that, you know, Jedi can wave their fingers and throw somebody across the room and stuff. So, you know, I, I'll go with that. Fair enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. I feel like we're being tough on this movie today. I think, um, you know, it's a movie I enjoy a lot every single time I see it. So. Well, what, okay. One final thing I wanted to say, yes, sort of, yes, you yes. know, bad thing was you mentioned uh, the fight scene between yes. Palpatine and Yoda, which is not great. Um, mm. And it it made me think 
in this movie, there are an awful lot of uh, Jedi falling and in danger of falling and lots of sort of peril of high places and people falling off things, which, fine, absolutely, I could buy, except that in that chase scene I mentioned at the start of episode two, Anakin is practically flying around like Superman. Yeah. And, you know, we see it in this movie as well. We see Jedi leaping around, having no problem jumping and dropping large distances, but suddenly if they're hanging on to something <laughs> at, a, at a height, suddenly it's dangerous. Yeah. That struck yeah. me again. You know, somebody needed to go over it with the red pen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just can't buy it. But I mean, the 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 total emotional truth of that climactic, you know, fight inside of you know a, a lava pit, a volcano. I mean, did you buy into that? Because that I bought I into. Felt, I felt like that was desperate. I yeah. mean, it, it is breathtaking. That I bought into more than the you know the whole Order sixty six thing. And yes, uh, Yoda versus Palpatine. That felt, even though of course that was again an entirely CG set. Um, but that felt, yeah, just sort of better and more visceral. I think helped partly by the fact that apparently, um, and they did this in Clones as well, Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor did all their own lightsaber fighting. I don't know. Um, yeah, the, the, the Order 66 moment where, you know, the Emperor orders everyone to kill all the Jedi and the stormtroopers basically um, turn and kill the people they've been fighting alongside the entire war. Um, I thought that was a horrible moment. Like, I forget the name of the uh, the Twi'lek uh, Jedi, you know, but oh, there's yes. so few women that get to be Jedi in, in Star Wars. Um, you know, she's a very major figure in the Clone Wars. And, like, seeing her, you know, gun in the back, and then you pull up, and she's in the midst of this beautiful, beautiful um, set on, uh, I think it's Felucia, mm. you know, um, I I found that to be just a horrible, gut wrenching moment. So I think it's one of those moments again where you're right. The the sort of the core of it, yes, of course, the Order sixty six thing, slaughtering the Jedi, is uh, is a horrible thing to do. You know, it's effectively genocide. But again, I think the execution. I didn't feel like I'd gotten to know any of these characters well enough to actually care that much about their deaths beyond the fact that they're Jedi. Huh. I don't know, Ayla Sakura, like she is, um, you know, she serves as like this, um, this role model for, um, you know, Ahsoka, who's the other female Jedi in, you know, the Clone Wars. So, I mean, it's like watching one of your very favorite characters get murdered. But again, that requires that you've seen all the, Clone, seen Wars the Clone Wars and understand that entire arc. Yeah, it's getting so, into transmedia territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, but I mean, just the composite of those shots, like the the film composition. I think there are, there are some shots that this this movie really, really nails. And I think Ayla Sakura being murdered and like that shot up, I think the shot of the mask coming down over Vader's face. Yes. For the first time, I think like you know, Vader clawing his way, Anakin rather clawing his way up the the lava, saying, I hate you, when his face is all melted and destroyed. I think, like, from a cinematography perspective, there are some truly breathtaking shots in this movie that I think really stand as some of the best composition of, you know, in film history. I I think there are some absolutely beautiful shots, agreed. And I think... Uh, probably, uh, and this is kind of damning with faint praise, I guess, but probably the best acting that Hayden Christensen does in this entire movie <laughs> is when is that exact shot when the helmet is coming down oh. over his scarred face 
and there's a yeah. look in his eye of fear, revulsion, but acceptance that this is how it's going to have to be. Yeah. That uh, he never achieves in any other scene in the movie. <laughs> and as I was watching, I was like, "Oh, that was good. That was really good. In fact, that's yeah, probably the best he's ever been in." The- <laughs> and just before his face gets covered, <laughs> I'm not going to agree with you on that, but I know where you're coming from. So, so okay. So tell me more about the things you do like about it. Obviously, you've said you like the the character arcs and the emotional yeah. core, but tell me more about sort of specific things in the movie that you enjoyed. I think, like, seeing Padme, I think this is the the one movie where she really feels like a character, a substantive character, even though her death is very low rent and is not earned in the movie. But, you know, Natalie Portman is so unbelievably amazing. Um, But she's not given a good script in, you know, Phantom Menace or Clone Wars. I think, like, she's really... I, I feel like they really blew it with her, you know? Um, so I think, like, her moments of, like, you know, when Anakin says, you're sounding more and more like a separatist every day, I think, like, I think she feels more alive in the script. And, you know, with all respect, Star Wars has never been very good about including women. No, so no. I think that I think that this is the one movie where I think like she really gets to rise up and have um, an arc that's even close to Leia, you know. So I think I think that's really really great. I think um, I think the design work overall, like you you kind of criticize these movies as feeling like um, they are kind of made for video games, and I agree with that. But something I feel like the prequels got better about as time went on was the design work and making it feel reminiscent of the original trilogy mm. while spinning it off and, and and making it feel fresh. Like, I don't think the Naboo Type J fighters, you know, the yellow ones in Phantom Menace, I don't think they're a successful design at all. Um, and I think, like, the Jedi fighters and the, the one-wheeled vehicles and I think a lot of the, just the entire world, I think this is by far the most successful design work of the entire trilogy. Um, I love seeing Obi-Wan. Um, you know, I love seeing people fail. I mean, to me, you know, the best James Bond movies are never the ones where he just goes on an adventure and gets a bad guy. Um, you know, the best ones are when James Bond fracks it up and he hurts and suffers because of that. Casino Royale, License to Kill, those movies. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, I'm hoping that's going to be, uh, you know, I think it was Skyfall to a certain extent too. So I don't know. Um, I think seeing Obi-Wan fail is just unbelievable, you know? Um, and I just, I, I also think the score is generally successful in this movie. Um, I felt it was a little over the top in the first two. Yeah, I think this is the moment where, you know, Williams is able to kind of bridge that gap and kind of allude to where we're going, um, but kind of make a score that's going to stand on its own. It did feel like more of the score in this movie it felt like there were more elements from the score of the original trilogy that popped up in this movie than in the previous mm-hmm. uh, prequels, which I'm sure was actually probably deliberate. That I will, you know, sort of happily say, yeah, that was probably by design, that as you go through the movies, music from the original trilogy sort of bleeds into them more as you approach, as you get closer to them within time. 
So I, I think that's it. Like, you know, it's <laughs> like either either the good of the film outweighs the bad for you or it doesn't. But, you know, I think this is a film that is it. I, I think it stands on its own, certainly better than the other two. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I will agree with. And I, right. I also agree with you that uh, the ship design in particular, I thought in this was very good. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, sort of the individual, the personal fighters and the personal sort of uh, cruises and stuff, I thought were all really well designed. I liked how the fighters that Anakin and Obi-Wan are in at the start are reminiscent of TIE fighters, because, of course, at that point, they're flying Republic ships, which would become the Empire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a moment where they open their wings and you think, oh, that really looks like a TIE fighter, especially when you see one of them tumbling end over end, reminiscent of, uh, you know, Vader's, uh, when he gets hit in, is it... Uh, it's a tie advance. No, I'm just trying to think which movie it's in. Actually, is it? Is it in episode? F- a new hope. Is it in a new hope or is it in Jedi? Yeah. You know, it is in a new hope, isn't it? Yeah. It is when in he gets a new hit hope, and he goes yeah. spiraling off into space, yeah. And yep. there's a one of the ships does that in that opening battle here, while it has it its does. wings extended, and it's really yeah, that's not an accident. That's clearly a sort of oh look, this looks a bit like a tie fighter. I hope people will give this film a fair chance. Well, and you're you're right that the 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 final trailer we're told has just come out a few days before we record. But this episode we are recording ahead of publication, and this episode oh. will come out the in the week that episode seven is about to hit theaters. Oh. So hopefully, oh. people are listening to this before they then go out to see episode seven in the theaters. Um, and we we envy you, people of the future. We will be there oh, with you do. soon. <laughs> Did you get tickets for opening night? Uh, no, uh, because oh. uh, ironically, I have a prior engagement on that night, which is absolutely nothing to do with cinema fiction or my work, uh, but which I absolutely <laughs> cannot get out of. So I will be waiting oh, until terrible. I will be waiting until the weekend. Fear not, every cinema near to me is showing it basically permanently <laughs> on on just about every screen they have. For at least the first week. I mean, literally, yeah, as soon yeah. as one real, as soon as one showing finishes, they'll ship everybody out and ship a new crowd in. You know, they are really packing them in. <laughs> That's going to be me. Um, we have we have friends flying in from California to come see it with us on opening night. Oh, wow. So I am. Um, I don't know. I'm really looking forward to it. I I do have a lot of hesitation because I think uh, you know JJ Abrams, the new Star Star Trek movie they did. I thought 2009 Star Trek was good. But I am extremely concerned by how much he wrote women out of Star Trek. And Mm. it is very frustrating to see Into Darkness and see, you know, see the, you know, her limited to be a nagging girlfriend. And, you know, Dr. Dr. Carol Marcus relegated to such a a role where she's essentially a babe and a, yeah, a damsel in distress. So... Um, you know, I have tremendous reservations if, you know, J.J. Abrams can, you know, make a character that's going to live up to Ahsoka and Ayla Sakura from The Clone Wars. Like, those are very big shoes to fill. So the, They are, and I agree, although I think there are, I mean, personally, I also have concerns just because I thought Into Darkness was not that great a movie. Uh, no, it was not. It was very well made, and it was very thrilling and exciting, but it wasn't actually you know, a movie that sort of stuck in the mind all that much. However, however, let us not forget that when the Star Trek reboot happened, everybody had stopped caring about Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, And the studios basically let Abrams do pretty much whatever he wanted because nobody cared about Star Trek anymore. Whereas 
this that is not absolutely not the case with episode seven it is not there are many many people at disney and lucasfilm who absolutely care very much about this movie um and about how they get made so i hope only hope because i haven't seen them yet but hope that our fears will be allayed and i like you i'm very very much looking forward to episode seven think that's a good place to leave it let's leave it there absolutely uh brianna thank you once again for coming on the show and defending the indefensible (laughs) (laughs) i love this show because of that like you know this is excellent it's the point of the show so where can people find you if they like what you have to say just check me out on Twitter, Space Cat Gal. Um, also, by the time this uh, comes out, we're going to have our newest game on Steam, uh, which is uh, Revolution 60 for PC. Um, it is a super cinematic uh, four-hour game that is basically an animated movie where you have to make the most gut-wrenching choices of your entire life. And, um, you know, it's a game unlike anything else out there. It's super professionally made, and we massively upgrade the graphics. So I'm hoping you will go on Steam and uh, support our studio. Oh, does that mean that you now have transparent solar panels? <laughs> yes, yes. We, <laughs> we, we put all of our budget into that. Thanks for listening to Unjustly Maligned. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please check out my comics, books, and music. For example, if epic sci-fi is your thing, you may enjoy my graphic novel series Wasteland, a post-apocalyptic mystery quest across a ruined America. Wasteland is available at your local comic or bookstore and at online retailers everywhere. Go to anthonyjohnston.com where you'll find information and links to all of my work. Please also consider rating Unjustly Maligned on iTunes. It's the best way to spread the word about the show and is very much appreciated. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for The Incomparable and is made in England. You can find more information, links and show notes at ump.fm. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. something i'm trying to figure out from the episode trailer episode 7 trailer which came out what three days before we recorded this is there something about the way they rendered the tie fighters in this new movie that feels so much more real and as best as i can tell um in looking at the the cg of it there's a little bit of translucence in the the tie fighter panels which are supposed to be solar panels oh, right and you can just see through it a little bit more it doesn't just look like a a texture thrown on you know a flat polyplane like it right, just it's feels not just a shader, yeah yeah it feels a lot more real and i can't wait for this to come out on blu-ray so i can really study that and figure <laughs> out why because it just feels so much more connected to reality do you think it's possible they like filmed those as actual models like they did in the original i think it's much more likely that they did more of that uh, yeah. or that they at least built you know, scanned the models to make the 3D models, uh, huh. which I'm not convinced they would have done in much of the prequel trilogy. Oh, of course I'm they sure didn't. they built of maquettes and stuff to design them, but actually scanning those maquettes to build the 3D models, to be fair to them, may actually have been beyond the technology of the time. But that is yeah. certainly feasible now, absolutely feasible in this day and age. So 
maybe that's what they, the approach they took. Well, it's not complete. Like you can you can scan something and get a you know very complex poly mesh from that, like a million. But you, you still know, need to make it look good. Yeah. Well, you have to make the materials. You know, I can't just scan like I'm looking at the metal, like the metal of the microphone I'm looking at right now. Like that's a diffuse. That's a relatively simple set of values. If you're asking yourself like what a a slightly translucent solar panel is going to look like in space. That is very, <laughs> yeah. you can't just scan that and make those, uh, those materials come together. That's a job for a, for a fairly specialized animator. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Actually materials artists. Oh, so. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's my field. Thank you again for, for coming on and, you know, talking about a movie that, you know, probably not that many people would be willing to go on the public <laughs> record about. <laughs> I love danger. I live for danger. So. 